Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. It's Coot here. Welcome to another special super bonus edition of Soul Talk. You know, as we launched the Soul Talk podcast, I actually wanted to do something really special. Um, In today's episode, uh, consider it a special bonus for you as as one of the first uh, listeners to my uh, Soul Talk podcast. I've really enjoyed receiving emails and comments on social media in terms of how you're enjoying the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, podcasts and episodes and interviews. I'm really glad it's adding value to your life. Uh, as today's uh, a special bonus, I did an interview uh, a couple of years back when I launched a, a very special uh, online summit called the Secret to Success Summit. We had thousands from tens of thousands from all over the world that uh, registered and listened in. And one of the great interviews I did was with uh, one of the uh, legendary motivational uh, gurus, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, Jack Canfield. You've probably read his book, uh, The Success Principles. I think it was it was such a, a great, straightforward, clear interview on dealing with success, the principles of, of success, and uh, what is it to succeed from the soul, living from the soul, living authentically. That uh, I thought it was too good to not share with you. Uh, my Soul Talk community. You know, Soul Talk is about inspiring you to live an authentic life, live live a life of fulfillment, grace, and purpose. And so uh, today's episode is an interview I did uh, back in 2015, and it was a really special uh, interview. So make sure you have pen and paper, take great notes, and enjoy this special episode with my dear friend Jack Canfield from the Secret to Success Summit 2015. I am jumping out of my seat and really uh, excited to introduce to you a man who, over the years, uh, has really inspired me profoundly and had a huge impact on my life. I think I first picked up one of his books, uh, Chicken Soup, and another one, I forget, might have been The Aladdin Factor, when I was about 15, 16 years old, a kid in London, leaving my father's church and uh, was just inspired by his work. And I know he's probably inspired many of you. He's, he's a visionary. Uh, one of the originators of Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has gone around the world and I think has something like 500 million copies in print. Uh, if there's a man who knows uh, anything about success, uh, it's definitely this amazing human being. It's safe to call him America's number one success coach, uh, a mentor of mine, I consider, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think most importantly, uh, having been around him the last few years, just one of the most authentic, sincere, genuine human beings I've come across uh, and blessed to know. So I'm really excited to uh, introduce you all to uh, the amazing Jack Canfield. Jack, welcome to the conversation on the Secret to Success Summit. Well, thank you for inviting me, Clute. I'm really glad to be here. 
great to be here. So uh, we're exploring success and what it means, Jack. And, you know, just, just before we dive in, I have a bunch of questions for you that I'm just dying to ask. But I uh, would love for you to, and I'm sure you've shared your story many times, but just if you would just take a moment for those that may not, you know, may not know of your story, just, just to set a little context, would love for you to just take a moment to just share a bit of your story and how you kind of came to be doing what you're doing and teaching and traveling the world and just sharing success principles and living authentically with, with millions of people. It'd be great if you just share a little bit of that and then we'll, we'll dive sure. into some juicy stuff. Sure. No, my story starts out very funny, Kud. I, I was uh, majoring in Chinese history in college, thinking I was going mm-hmm. to be in the State Department and be a diplomat with China. And um, my senior year, my roommate said, oh, there's a really easy A you can go get. It's called uh, Social Relations 10 course. So I went and took this course. It was really just people sitting around talking about their feelings, and it was kind of what they called an encounter group back then. I fell in Mm -hmm. love with it. I thought, I want to go up and do this. So Mm -hmm. I got into graduate school in education because I had no undergraduate psychology classes. And uh, so my advisor said, once you go to school in education, you can sneak into psychology through educational <laughs> psychology. So I ended up teaching in an all-black school in Chicago for a couple of years, uh, right when the civil rights movement was happening. I was in marches with Martin Luther King and so forth. Went to Jesse Jackson's church and was very inspired to make a difference in the world. And that kind of radicalized and changed my life and pushed me in a direction of social change and personal development. And I became more interested in how can I help my kids be motivated? Because my kids weren't very motivated. And that uh, mm. I wasn't teaching history because I was a history teacher. And so I became an expert in motivation to try to motivate them. And then my kids started doing so well, all the other mm. people said, you need to be teaching the other teachers. So I very quickly became a teacher trainer. And I was running around the Midwest running teacher trainings for schools for years until this principal mm. said, my husband's company needs what you're doing. And I said, I've never worked in a company except as a floor sweeper in a General Electric plant one summer. <laughs> so I don't think I qualify. She said, they're just big kids in suits. Now go talk to them. So I did. <laughs> and they loved it. And we talked about goal setting and values and purpose and, you know, visualization, affirmations, all the stuff that we still talk about today. And so basically that started transitioning me into the corporate world. And when there was a recession in 1993, all the education money dried up. So that's when I started doing public trainings. And um, mm-hmm. it was in that period of time when I was running around doing a lot of weekend workshops all over the country on self-esteem and peak performance that mm-hmm. I had this experience of somebody saying, that story you told about the puppy, is that in the book anywhere? And I said, no. And the very next day, someone said, that story about the Girl Scouts, is that in the book anywhere? Because I was telling lots of stories. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of Chicken Soup for the Soul. I was coming home on a plane from Boston. I said, well, how many stories do I know? And I had like about 70 stories, you know, the Girl Scout story, the puppy story, the the guy that jumped off the building story, you know, whatever, all stories of people overcoming obstacles and, and living their dreams and so forth. So I put them in a book, and I was about to get it published, and then Mark Victor Hansen and I had breakfast, and he said, um, what are you working on? I said, I've got this book of stories. And he said, I want to do it with you. I said, that's like telling James Michener you want to finish Hawaii with him after you've, you know, he's written three quarters <laughs> of the book. Why would I do that? He says, well, you only have 70 stories. You need 100. 101 is a, a, you know, a spiritual number. Mm. And I went, okay. And it turned out he's a great marketer, and I'm a great behind-the-scenes mm. guy, and we ended up with a great book. And, mm. and you know, I've been doing either writing books or I've been uh, running trainings, as you know, ever since then. And that, that mm. kind of takes me up to the present moment, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Now I know uh, what, you know you when you went out and started pitching your book. Uh, I think you got quite a few rejections. I'm curious. There yeah, hundred and forty four rejections. And for yeah, those of you we- listening, been rejected like twice. You got like a hundred and forty two more to go. Jack, what what I mean, what on earth kept you going? One after the other after the other. Usually people give give up on their dreams after like three. You know what 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 kept you going? Well, that's the thing. You know, I felt like I was divinely inspired to do this book. I don't know. I think, you know, if you really tap into your purpose, and we can talk about that in a minute, what yes. happens is you kind of get goosebumps. You know, you get you get this, this shivers of, of, of rightness about it. And, um, you know, to, to back up a bit, I, I knew when, I, when, when I, all these people were asking me, you know, is that in the book? Is that in the book? Is that in the book? And mm-hmm. so I knew we were on to something. And off. What happens in New York, you get a lot of these 25-year-old graduates from Smith, Barnard, you know, places like that. <laughs> They're literary majors. And our book was not literary. It was a book of real <laughs> stories. There was no precedent. There had never been a book of, of true stories published like that. So they had no reference for it. And they were afraid. They never want to make a mistake. They're always looking for what's the next book that's similar to the book that just made it. So that plus the fact that when we didn't have a title, Mark and I uh, decided we would meditate to get a title. And um, on the third day, we, every day we meditated for like a half an hour and just said, you know, God, give us a title. And on the third day, I saw this green chalkboard like in a school, and his hand came out with chalk, and it wrote chicken soup. And I said, what the heck does chicken soup have to do with my book? And the voice, which I interpreted as God's voice, said, You're, when you were sick as a child, your grandmother always gave you chicken soup. And I said, but this is not a book about sick people. And then the voice responded, people's spirits are sick. This was 1993 with the Gulf War, uh, recession, layoffs, kind of like you know after the uh, Wall Street crisis a few years ago. And so I said, chicken soup for the spirit, chicken soup for the soul. And then when I said chicken soup for the soul, in my head, my body got goosebumps. I told wow. my wife, she got goosebumps. I called Mark, he got goosebumps. I called my Agent, he got goosebumps, went to New York, 22 publishers, nobody got goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, our, our literary agent gave us the book back, and then we went to the uh, Booksellers Association uh, annual meeting where there's like 4,000 publishers, and uh, we went from booth to booth to booth all day long for three days, everyone saying wow. no, 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 no. And finally, on the third day, late in the afternoon, this little publisher from Florida said, we'll at least read the manuscript. And they took it, and they um, they got goosebumps. So uh, that first year, we sold, I think, about 35,000 copies. The next year, over a million. Wow. What, 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 was, the, what, do you, what was the difference from, let's say, the first year to the second year? Like, it went from 35 to a million. Was there something that tipped that? Was there an inner well, something? Well, I think what tipped it over... We actually had a goal to sell a million and a half in a year and a half, and we we sold 1.3 million in that in that year and a half, and um, you know we weren't disappointed, we were thrilled, but that was an intention we had. We visualized it, we affirmed it, we told everyone about it, we believed it. I think the mm-hmm. thing that tipped it was it it was kind of like a chain letter, like a multi-level marketing thing, where you would read mm-hmm. the book, and then about two weeks later, after you finished reading it, you would tell two or three friends. And then two weeks later, they would tell two or three of their friends. So it just kept multiplying until eventually, I think it was about 14 months later, it hit the bestseller list, a number 15 on the Washington Post. And the next week, it went to the New York Times. 
climbed up to number one and stayed there for three years. So I think it was just the word of mouth just kept mm. getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And I, I think, you know, one of the lessons in that for people listening to this is, yes. you know, we live in an age of instant gratification. And I think the reality is some things take time. You know, you read all these books that say it takes 10,000 hours to master something, whether it's being a neurosurgeon or a violinist or playing the guitar or being a public speaker. And I think quite often people think, you know, it's about seven years for most people. They think things happen overnight. And sometimes they do. You know, the Internet gives us that potential. But I think the reality is that many people give up way too soon and don't hang in there long enough. Mm, amazing. You know, it sounds really sounds like you you aligned with your purpose, Jack. And for those listening in, because I think there's also a lot of folks that they feel a calling to make a difference, to have an impact, to to share a message. They they feel it, they felt it. You know, there's that desire. That's why they're on this call. But I think there's also folks that they feel that, but they don't know what to do. They don't know the form of what that looks like exactly. They just feel the sense. I'm meant to uh, make a difference in people's lives. So, uh, number one, how does someone actually find or tap into what their purpose is? And if someone, how does someone, what does someone then do next in terms of if they don't know the form of what that is? Well, let's take it. Let's go. Let's go in backward order. I'm going to answer the second question yes. first. If you don't know what to do, let's say you get the you know, inspiration or the sense of your life purpose is you're to be a musician or you're to, you know, be a stylist for clothing or whatever. Um, often you don't know what to do. So I'll tell a story to answer that. I was in Texas and I was getting makeup put on to go on to a morning TV show, like Good Morning America type thing. And uh, this woman was putting on my makeup and I said to her, what, do you have a dream? Because I always ask that to people. What's your, what's your biggest dream? She said, I want to own my own salon. And I said, fabulous. What are you doing to make that happen? And she said, nothing. And I said, that's a terrible strategy. That won't get you there. <laughs> and so she said, well, I don't know what to do. I said, do you know anyone who owns a salon? She said, yes. I said, why don't you ask them what they did? And she went, wow, that's a really good idea. Now, to me, that's just obvious. But obviously, it was not to her. But the point is, someone has all, with a few examples, like the first time we went to the moon, for example, but with almost everything you want to do, Someone has already done it. And as Tony Robbins likes to say, success leaves clues. They leave it in the form of a manual, a book, a seminar, a workshop, a paper, a video on YouTube talking about it, whatever it might be. So go find someone who's already done what you want to do and then ask them if they'll have lunch with you or if you can sit on a plane next to them when they fly to New York next time. Uh, if they'll just allow you to interview them over the phone for 10 minutes, if they'll mentor you, if they have a book about it, whatever. And then you can find out exactly what to do. And sometimes your steps will be different than their steps, but the point is most people are very willing to share with you how they did it. Now, most people are not going to get to talk to Lady Gaga, but you can get yeah. to talk to somebody who's a musician locally who's now you know doing concerts and recording and so forth. And the same with being a speaker, a coach, a business success whatever. So to go to your first question, how do you discover what it is you want to do? There's a couple of different things I teach people. Purpose basically is uh, easy to find out if you really go into it. I teach three things. Number one, we call it a joy review. Uh, basically, ask yourself, when have I experienced the most joy? When do I feel the most expanded rather than contracted? When do I feel the most alive rather than bored? So for me, I always notice 
because I felt most alive when I was teaching, whether it was in the Boy Scouts when I was a Boy Scout leader, whether it was in school when I was, I went to a military school for high school and I became a captain. And so I could instruct all the younger students on how to drill and everything. And I really enjoyed that. It was fun for me. Uh, when I was at Harvard, I did, I did volunteer work in the schools. I loved it. When I was teaching, I loved it. When I'm writing, I love it. When I'm uh, you know, coaching people, I love it. I can't wait to get on stage. I can't wait to get a client. I love to do these calls like with you. So I know I'm giving value. So basically, look back over your life. In my book, The Success Principles, which we're just coming out this year with, uh, well, actually, this came out a couple weeks ago, the um, 10th anniversary edition of The Success Principles. And I have a story in there about a young woman who was going to Ohio State University, and she was uh, miserable. And what happened was she loved animals. And everyone said, you should be a veterinarian. You love animals. Well, she did love animals, but when she went to Ohio State, she realized to be a veterinarian, it was more like medical school, which was biochemistry and chemistry and physiology and anatomy, and she wasn't really enjoying that very much. And so she sat, one, she sat down one day when it was raining, and she just said, I'm not happy. When was I happy? And when she looked back, she had been a school leader in high school. She was helping lead uh, at the university, and she was also – when they would have like statewide leadership conferences for the kids from high school, she would always go and be part of that. She said, I'm happiest when I'm leading. So she went to Ohio State and she said, I would like to, um, you know, she went to the administration and said, I want to get a degree in leadership. And they said, we don't have such a degree. And she said, well, <laughs> could we create one? You know, I'll do speech and business and psychology and persuasion courses and all that. And so anyway, she stayed an extra year, but she got a degree, the first degree they ever gave in leadership. And at 26, wow. she was working at the Pentagon teaching military people how to be better leaders. And now she has a foundation. She won the Miss Virginia contest. She's also very beautiful. And what she did with her award money was to create a foundation to train youth leaders. So if you go back and do an analysis, when was I happiest? That's one way to find out. The second thing you can do is a guided visualization. I teach this in my seminars where I take people up a mountain. They go into a temple and they imagine a wise person, like a guided, like a, a guardian angel, coming down through a beam of light in the skylight, and this guardian angel gives them a gift that would be a symbol for their life purpose. And almost everyone that's ever done that visualization gets a really profound answer. Actually, much more profound than they were expecting. Sometimes it kind of rocks them to the bottom of their life. They realize they need to change careers, or they need to really show up differently in the career they're in. And the third thing you can do is to, in my book, The Success Principles, the first, actually the second chapter is called Be Clear While You're Here, which is all about life purpose. And there's actually a paper and pencil test you can take yourself through, which says, what are my two most uh, qualities that, that most describe me? So for me, it's love and joy. For someone else, like my wife, it's authenticity and spontaneity. And then you say, what are the two ways I most love to express those qualities? So for me, it's teaching by inspiring people and empowering them through my teaching. So the chicken soup stories inspire people. The trainings I do empower people. And then you look at if you could make the world a perfect place, according to you, what would be happening? Well, according to me, everyone would be living their highest vision. According to my wife, everyone would be telling the truth, being honest, and having a lot of fun. So for my life purpose, ends up being um, inspiring and empowering people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy. So all the work I do fulfills that purpose. My wife, her vision is being a, a spontaneous and uh, authentic person, which gives people 
other people permission to just be themselves because that's what she does. She just bees herself. So everybody can go through that little test, which is in or that form, if you want to fill it out, which is in my book, uh, and that'll take you into your life purpose as well. Beautiful, powerful stuff. Hey, Jack, I'm, I'm I'm wondering too. You know, there's a lot of talk about in terms of creating success and manifesting your vision in the world. This whole notion of intention, being clear, having an intention, mm-hmm. and uh, and moving for acting on the intention. So you know, you've achieved a lot of success. So I'm wondering, what is the balance between you know having an intention and also surrendering? Because sometimes we you know we think we know what we want, and then maybe we get it and we realize, oh, this isn't what I really wanted. Or sometimes things that we thought we wanted don't happen, and only ret- retrospect we realize, oh, that was a blessing in disguise. So how do we, you know, how does someone have an intention but not be so attached to it and remain open at the same time, but not so, you could say, passive that they they don't do anything and they don't participate with the universe? Right. Can you talk about that? Well. You really answered your own question by saying, because I teach people what we call clear intention, low attachment, high intention, low attachment, meaning Mm -hmm. that you want to have an intention of what you think will bring you the greatest joy, what you think will fulfill your purpose, what you think will, you know, create a result in the world that you want. And then Mm -hmm. as we learn from the law of attraction work, don't be too attached to the how. You know, we can be clear Mm -hmm. about the what, and then the how Mm -hmm. will often show up in a very different way. I mean, I, I didn't know, for example, one of the people that, that really helped our book get launched was a guy who originally rejected me. Um, he ran a company called Skillpath. And I had uh, some audio programs that they were selling in the back of the room at their trainings. And they had about 50 trainers a day running around the country teaching, you know, how to use an Excel spreadsheet and how to deal with a difficult boss, those kind of trainings. And... I said to him, I've got this great book. You ought to sell it. And he said, well, there's not enough profit in it. You know, we sell an audio program. We make $50. We sell a book. We make $6. It just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense to us. And so I thought, okay, say la vie. And then I get a call from him about a month later saying this miracle had happened. I said, well, what happened? He said he was a Christian and he leads a uh, Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday night uh, discussion group for men about the Bible and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he always liked to start with a story. And he got there, and he realized he didn't have a story to start with. So he opened his briefcase, and there was my book, The Success Principles, which he had thrown in his briefcase. So he read a story to them, uh, and they loved it. And they said, read us another story. But anyway, he ended up reading five stories that night. And people said, where can we get that book? And he, he realized, you know, everyone wanted a copy, like all 15 men in his group. So he said, maybe I've made a rash decision. So he called me back and said, I think we're going to sell your book. Well, they were going, they had, think about this, 50 people every day in places like Ames, Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, places I would never get to, places I would Mm. never get a radio show, interview, or whatever. So this book, that was one of the major things that broke that that through. And Mm. I had no idea it would happen like that. I just kept holding the intention that the book would Mm. get sold. But the how often shows up different. And the other thing is, as you said, I think life is an experiment. You try something out, you, you, you think it's going to make you feel good, and then it doesn't. You know, I mean, I remember thinking if I had a pool table, man, I would be really cool. I could play pool every night. <laughs> I would really love it, you know. And it's one of those things like, you know, a year later, it's where you fold the laundry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it didn't give me the, the joy I thought it would. So often you have to leave. I, I teach, I have a whole chapter called Just Lean Into It in my mm. book. And the idea is you try something on. I had a friend who thought he wanted to own a restaurant. And I said, Jacob, 
because he loved to cook and he loved, he's a great host and all that. I said, why don't you go work in a restaurant and just volunteer your time or you can get a job. You know, he was a foundation executive. But I said, just volunteer, do it for free, they'll let you do it. So he worked in a restaurant for about a month, did all the different jobs. And he said, I hate the restaurant business. It's, you, you got to be up early in the morning, you got all the fresh food in, you got cooks don't show up on time, you know, all this stuff. So I said, great. So now he just he realized that was not going to fulfill him, but he wouldn't know that until he did it. So, you know, when you're when you're not sure what to do, you think something will work, then try it on. You know, I've played many different instruments in my life, and I settled on the guitar, you know. And um, I didn't know I didn't want to play the piano until I found out it took a lot more work than I thought it would. But guitar I could master, and so given my time, that's what I do. So, uh, like you said, don't be attached. High intention, low attachment. I'll tell you one last story on that. Yes. We... Uh, when, when, when my when my main work was running seminars, which we now have one division of our company that does that, but when it was just me and a few other people, that's all we did. And we did these guest events where people would come on like a Tuesday night and they could test out the training. We'd do like three hours of exercises and mm-hmm. people could ask Q&A. And one day we, we uh, put a lot of energy into doing this guest event and only six people showed up. Normally, like you get 100, 200 mm-hmm. people. And my staff was crushed. They just like were freaked out. What had happened is we, we actually scheduled on the Tuesday of the week that American Thanksgiving happens, and nobody's coming to us. They're all on their uh-huh. way to go to their parents' house or whatever. We didn't know that, and uh, now we do. So anyway, I said to my staff, look, there's six people here. We're going to give them the best guest event they ever had. I think mm-hmm. five of them signed up. But the point being that they were all disappointed because they were attached to a high outcome. And what mm-hmm. I had learned early on in life is don't be attached to the outcome. Do the best you can. Whatever happens is meant to be. Um, Byron Katie is a good teacher of that. You know, just love what is and uh, stop mm-hmm. thinking it has to be different. So it, it's important to have a vision of what you want your life to be, and it's important to honor your desires and move in those directions, but never to be attached because it's the attachment that creates the pain and the suffering. Mm-hmm. Powerful. You know, uh, you have 500 million books in print, and, you know, uh, something like... Uh, Holding the record for the, uh, the Guinness World Record for most uh, bestsellers, seven, seven books simultaneously on the New York Times bestsellers. You know, you've you've achieved a lot of success in the world, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you've had failures, successes, ups and downs, challenging times. I'm curious, Jack, based on everything you've learned today, where you're at, what what is success to you now? Well, you know, when when I first started out, success meant being able to do whatever I wanted to do, whether it was make money, uh, you know, fill a seminar, write a book and have people love it, you know, whatever. So it was creating a result. And lately, I've changed that. About three years ago, I changed my definition to success is fulfilling your soul's purpose. Because if you come here, it, 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 I think it was um, Stephen Covey had a great line. He said, you don't want to get to the top of the ladder and find out the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And so you spend your whole life working, working, working to achieve something and discover it wasn't what you were here for. So that's why it's so important to get in touch with your purpose. And so for me, you know, I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose every day right now with you on the phone. And it would be horrible to come and realize you kind of missed it. So that and then just just last a uh, couple months ago, in, in I think it was October, November, I was in a conference in Boulder called Success 3.0. Was put on by a guy named Mark Gaffney and, uh, and uh, Ken Wilbur, two really brilliant minds, and they put forward a definition of success that I think I'm moving toward adopting, 
which is that success is the fulfillment of the evolution of consciousness that's trying to express itself through you. So let me explain what that means. So if there is a God, a universe that is expanding and growing and, 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 and evolving just like we are, and all the work that Ken Wilber's done indicates that everything evolves, and including, if we could say, God or consciousness or the universe. And we know the universe is expanding from the Big Bang. So each of us is the cutting edge of evolution of consciousness. And each of us, if we fulfill that, that inspiration that moves us, the, the things that want to be expressed through us, what Michael Beckwith says, uh, you know, through us as us. And so what happens is my desire to make a difference through the work I do your desire to do that, some musician's desire to create a symphony, someone else's desire to write a song, someone else's desire to have a new breakthrough in medicine or holistic healing. Whatever that desire is, as you fulfill that, you are fulfilling your purpose. And so it, it's similar to your soul's purpose, but I think it's, a, it's even bigger than soul, which is that all of consciousness is expressing to evolve itself through us. And each of us is an individual, unique expression of that. And if you don't be yourself, as everyone says, you know, really fulfill your unique expression of yourself, then in a sense you have failed to be that which is you were created to be. Mm. Mm. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Um, what if, you know, I guess how can someone who, you know, they look around, Jack, and they look in their life and, you know, maybe they feel like they failed several times, they've been divorced several times, failed relationships, uh, they haven't achieved success, maybe there's very little money in their bank account, uh, and then maybe, you know, struggling with self-worth and going, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not valuable or, or I'm a failure, and they have that definition. How can someone, um, despite external circumstances, begin, begin, take the steps to start cultivating the self-worth and self-esteem and belief in themselves again? Well, the first thing I always tell everybody is that you you are meant to be here and you've already mm. been a huge success on two. Mm. Here's the reason. When, when you were born, there were 50 million sperm that were ejected into your mother's womb and you won. The, the sperm mm. that was you one. I used to think it was the fastest, strongest sperm that got there, but we now know that many sperm get to the egg, and the egg then chooses the one it wants. It'll open up to that sperm. So not only were you one of the fastest, strongest ever, but you also were chosen. And so out of 50 million potential yous, you got to be here. So you won the sperm race. So you're already, you don't need to justify your existence in any other way than the fact that you, you're here. Now, the second thing is self-esteem, and I used to be a self-esteem expert. I mean, that's, that was my, all of my work, is basically uh, it, it consists of two things, which is being lovable and capable. Now, lovable means that people include you. They like being around you. And capable means you have the belief that you have the competence to handle anything that shows up in your life. Now, you may not know everything you need to know, but you know you could learn it. You could develop it. You have the capacity to evolve and, and develop skills and use them in your life. So the first part of that is you need to go and surround yourself with positive, loving people. 
And you should have gotten that growing up. If you got parents who loved you unconditionally, which is only about maybe 3% of all parents ever did that, uh, then you'll, you'll meet people sometimes. They're just happy. They're doing what they want to do. They have no self-esteem issues. And they got that kind of parenting. So by the time they were 14, they just knew they were lovable. And if they succeeded, they knew they were capable. But for most of us, we have to reparent ourselves by going and finding people like if all the people that are on this phone call were to get into a big stadium, you could walk mm-hmm. around and most of those people would be the kind of people I'm talking about, people that are searching, people that are goal-oriented, people that want to live a better life, people that are maybe spiritually oriented, people that could be your friends that are positive. And so we want to surround ourselves with positive, loving, encouraging, nurturing people. And often that's we find those people in workshops, we find them in certain church groups, we find them in retreats, spiritual retreats. So go put yourself, go find those people in your life. And don't pretend to keep being a victim because you're not out there looking. And sometimes you have to work on yourself to become more lovable. Sometimes we become cynical, negative, you know, mm. we're, we're critical of people, we put people down, we're, you know, people don't want to be around that. So we have to, you know, maybe take a workshop on, you know, how to be more positive or a workshop on happiness or something to that effect. Confidence mm. side is we need to, do, we need to, know that we can develop skills. There's a book called uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck where she realized half the people in the world don't think they can improve themselves. They think if they were born with an IQ at a certain level, they're stuck with it. Well, that's not true. You can actually raise your IQ through certain kinds of activities and training. And so if you believe you have a growth mindset, which is good, if you don't, you can just choose to believe that because all beliefs are a choice. And then what happens is you begin to develop skills and take risks. Self-confidence is the result of a survived risk. If I'm afraid of being rejected by a woman and I go and I ask 20 women for a date and finally one of them says yes, well, I survived that risk. I actually got a date. So that builds my self-confidence. I remember being in one of the first seminars I was ever in uh, where this guy, it was only about 20 of us in the room, and this guy said he, said he wanted to ask all the women a question. He said, do you find me attractive? And I almost died inside. I couldn't imagine asking that of like, you know, 10 <laughs> and And they all said yes. And then I thought, well, I want to know if I'm attractive. <laughs> so I took the same risk and asked the question, and, and everyone said yes, too. And now once I asked that and survived it and got the answer I liked, you know, uh, that made it more – I was more comfortable in the future asking other risky questions, you know. Mm-hmm. And the more honest and transparent and vulnerable we are, the better our life works. So when you survive those risks, whether it's the first sales call or asking for a date or investing money and losing it or not, whatever, but when you survive those risks, that's how you develop confidence. I remember I took a firewalk training with Tony Robbins. Now, not a really useful skill. I'm not going to walk on a lot of barbecues, you know, at a party or anything. But what it what it told me was that I was afraid I was going to get burned, and I didn't. And I get to the other side, you're in this euphoric state, and then I said, well. What else have I been telling myself I can't do? What else have I been afraid of, you know, a rejection or whatever? And I was like on a high for about two months just doing everything. And all those things I, I succeeded in. So my self-confidence went way up. So we have to take risks. Now, the last part of this is don't take gargantuan risks. You know, don't ask the most beautiful girl on the planet for a date if you've never done that before. Start with someone, you know, that's a little safer. Start with don't invest your entire life savings. You know, maybe invest you know a thousand dollars or something, and then see how that works. So take baby steps and keep building up until you know that you can do the. You know, it's like diving. You know, the guys that dive yes. at the cliffs in Mexico, they don't start up there. 
they dive off the mm-hmm. side of the pool, then a, a diving board, then a high dive, then they can move to higher levels. Mm-hmm. Taking those baby steps. Beautiful. You know, you're talking about asking, uh, Jack, and I think, you know, in order to create, to fulfill one's vision in the world, one's dharma, one's life purpose, you know, we can't do it alone. We have to ask, and, and uh, it takes a team. So I'd love to know, are there any keys to asking? Are there any lessons you've learned about the art of asking successfully and uh, uh, what, what what's the key to asking? Well, I actually wrote a book about it. It was Mark, uh, called The uh, Aladdin Factor because Aladdin asked the genie and the genie granted him everything he wanted. So that's how we named the book. And the subtitle was How to Ask for and Get Everything You Want. So we both have a book and an audio program on that. But the key to asking, number one, is to realize you are going to get some no's. In fact, in my training, the Breakthrough to Success training, we do an exercise called the Nine No's Exercise where I get, you know, 300 people up and they have to mill around, ask for something that they really want in their life. And uh, people in the group are, are you're instructed to give away nine no's. So the first nine people that ask me for something, I say no. And the tenth person that asks me for something, I'm, I say yes. I don't have to deliver it, but it's just an exercise. And so every tenth person gets a yes. Well, if you let that go on for 20 minutes, almost everybody gets a yes. And what they walk mm-hmm. away from that exercise realizing is, I got a lot of no's, but I got a yes. So a friend of mine wrote a book called Go for No, and the idea is that most of us are out trying to get a yes. When we get a no, we're devastated. And like as you said, sometimes people after three rejections give up. Um, yes. I remember in our uh, one of our books we had a quote by a woman named Barbara Kingsolver, who's a um, an author, and she said, "When your manuscript comes back marked, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rejected, don't think mm-hmm. it means what you've written is no good." Think instead mm-hmm. that the acquisition editor that will love your book does not live at this address. And I love that. So the idea is someone's going to say yes. I often say think of the least attractive, most obnoxious person you know, and they're probably married. Somebody said yes. So there's a yes out there for you if you ask enough people. So the way you reframe it is to say, okay, today I'm going to go get 20 no's. I'm not going to stop until I, my goal is to get 20 no's. And what happens mm-hmm. is, by by being going for the no and then getting a no and going, yay, I got another no. Great, I'm halfway to my 20 no's. Somewhere in there is a yes. And so by changing the game in your head, we say reject rejection. When the world says no, you say next. And I'll often have my audiences, I'll say no. They chant back next. I say no, next. I hate you. Give me a loan, next. We're not interested, next. Slam the door in your face, next. But literally, remember 144 books, or publishers before we got our book published. What if I'd quit after 100? I wouldn't be on this call today. No one would know about me and no one would care. So that's the first thing is just your attitude about it. The second thing is, even though you're going for no, expect that you're going to get a yes. You know, you're, you're, you're visualizing a yes. You can, in your meditation time, you can visualize people saying yes to you. So you're creating a positive visualization of what it is you want. So you're setting up the universe and your subconscious to create that. The other thing is ask as if you expect to get it. A lot of people, when they're asking, their their attitude is you're probably going to say no, and the other person can pick it up. So you mm-hmm. have to come from a place that you deserve it, that it's out there for you, and it's just a matter of asking enough people. It's kind of like pretending mm-hmm. there's a room with 100 people. One of them has a present for you. They've been ordained by God to give it to you, but you have to ask first. And so now it's just called, do you have it? 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 Mm-hmm. Someone's going to say yes. 
So the other thing is uh, when you ask, give the person a why. People want to know why it is you want it. I'll give you a good example of something that really blew me away when we were interviewing people for our book. We, there was a girl who sold the most Girl Scout cookies door-to-door of any girl in America, over 30,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in her career. Wow. And one year she sold, I think her first year was 3,125 boxes. She was a Brownie Scout. She wasn't even a full Girl Scout yet. She was 11, I think. And wow. uh, turns out her mother was a waitress and wanted uh, – her daughter to go to to go to college, but she also wanted to go around the world. That was for herself, and she knew that she couldn't fund both of those dreams. So she said to Marquita Andrews, was her name, uh, Marquita, you know, I'm your mom, and I've got this dream, and I want you to have your dream come true to go to college and be the first girl to ever do that. But I can't fund both dreams. I make a deal with you though. If you'll promise when you get a job that a college graduate can get that I couldn't get as a waitress. If you'll save money to send me around the world, they come up with a number of what it would be, and Marquita at 11 said, sure, I'll do that. Now, the next year, the Girl Scouts have this contest. Girl who sells most cookies wins trip for two around the world. So Marquita doesn't go up to the door and knock on like that and go, hi, I'm a Girl Scout. We're selling cookies this year. And most girls go, like, you wouldn't want to buy any cookies, would you? And so <laughs> she, she goes like this. She knocks on the door. person answers the door. She says, hi. You can see by my uniform, I'm a Girl Scout. My name is Marquita Anderson, neighborhood. And uh, my mother has a dream. Her dream is mm-hmm. to go around the world. And I want to help my mother achieve that dream. And this year, the Girl Scouts have a contest. The girl who sells the most cookies wins a trip for two around the world. How many boxes of Girl Scout cookies will you buy to support my dream? And people go, oh. can't be enough? <laughs> <laughs> Where is this girl? I'm going to buy some cookies. I know, exactly. And the cool part is, she sold so many cookies the first year or two that the million-dollar roundtable invited her to come and speak at their meeting that they have of all these insurance salesmen that sell a million dollars worth of insurance mm-hmm. in a year. Mm-hmm. And there was like a 1,000 people at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And here's Marquita at the age of 12, keynoting, talking about mm-hmm. how you can sell more cookies, condos, Cadillacs, and anything else in the world. I think it was a title. <laughs> and she said, at the end of her speech, she said, look down under your chair. You'll find a 3 by 5 index card. Please pick that up. She said, now write a number between 5 and 7, or 5 and 10 on that card. So everyone wrote down a number. She said, now as you leave through the lobby, that's the number of boxes of Girl Scout cookies I want you to buy today. She sold 7,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies at that one event. So she's a master of asking. But but she, she told people why she wanted them to do it. She asked boldly. She asked as if she was expecting to get it. She was not nervous. She And the other thing is, when you're making a sale, especially, or you're asking someone to do something that's actually uplifting for the world, like contribute to a cause, like building a school in Africa, you're actually giving them an opportunity. So the way I always say to people is, look, if I had a map to a gold mine and there was unlimited gold in that mine and I wanted you to have it, wouldn't I, I would tell all my friends, hey, I've got this map. There's enough gold for everybody. So whatever you're selling, whether it's a cure for cancer or whether it's a multi-level marketing company you're involved with or whether it's a seminar or a coaching program, treat it like you're offering them a map to unlimited wealth and riches because whatever you're giving them, if it's of value and service, that's really what you're doing. You're not selling them something. You're offering them a solution to a problem in their life. Mm -hmm. Powerful stuff. hope everyone uh, listening in today 
that you're taking some some notes. Uh, what Jack is saying is is key, and I just want to invite, as you're listening to Jack Canfield with me today on the Secret to Success Summit, just ask yourself: How many no's can you go out and get today, and reframe your relationship with a no? Just know that every no is simply bringing you one step closer to a yes. Let, let me let me add something before you ask the next yes. question. One of the most powerful questions I ever learned was when someone says no, ask the follow-up question, what would it take to get a yes? What would it take mm. to get a yes? This is what happened. This is how we eventually sold our chicken soup book. We mm. said to, we started asking that question to some publishers, and one of them said, you'd have to convince me you could sell 20,000 copies of the book. Because if we sell 20,000, we'll have covered our printing costs, our development costs, you know, the editorial costs and all of that. And if we do that, then it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a game we're playing where there's no real risk. We don't make any money necessarily, but we wouldn't lose any. And so Mark and I went out, and every talk we gave for the next six months, we would put a, a, a piece of eight and a half by eleven paper on the, on the chair of the audience. We sometimes we'd put out, hand out a thousand pieces of these paper, and on it was typed. I promise to buy X number of copies of Mark and Jack's Chicken Soup for the Soul book when it's released. And people might say one copy, five copies. One guy said 1,700 copies. And actually when the book came out, he bought 1,700 copies, gave them to all of his coaching clients in Canada. And so once we had promises for 20,000 books, which filled up a whole banker's box, we took that to the Booksellers Association and we showed that to a couple of the publishers. And that's what got us to sell that book. Uh, because they said, okay, if you can guarantee that, we'll we'll go we'll go with you guys. Now the key is, often they'll say, you know, you say, well, what would have to happen that you ask for a raise? They say no. Well, what would have to happen to get a yes? Well, I need you to take this management course, learn to speak Spanish, and do that. Well, now you know what it takes to get a yes. I could ask for an upgrade on a on an airplane seat. They say no. What would have to happen to get a yes? They might tell me. Sometimes just asking the question, they're so amused by it, they'll give you a yes. Sometimes they'll tell you, you know, the flight's full. Sometimes they'll tell you you have to have more miles. Um, so it, it's a really valuable question, and often you get an answer that allows you to get a yes right there or very quickly. I'll give one more example. I walked into a, a, a Xerox. They, they were selling Xerox machines, and I needed some copies made, and the business center at the hotel was not working. The Xerox machine was working. So I walked in. And I said, I'd like to get 20 copies of this uh, handout made. And they said, we're not a, a copy store. We sell copy machines. I said, I understand that, but what would I have to do to get a yes? They said, you have to get approval from the manager. I said, could you bring the manager out? And then I explained myself. I introduced myself, said who I was, said, what would have to happen to get a yes? He said, just hand them to me. So, again, mm-hmm. instead of just saying, oh, it's a no, ask what would have to happen to get a yes, and often you get mm-hmm. a very good uh, response. Mm, powerful question, really powerful question. What would need to happen or have to happen to get a yes, everyone? Ask that in your life, see what happens. Um, Jack, you know, you've achieved a lot of success on many levels in your life, uh, definitely in your career as well. And I'm, I'm curious, is there anything, you know, because I think there's a lot of people listening in who also you know, they have dreams of selling a book, or, and, and, you know, some might have a, an idea of if when I get to that stage, then I'll have made it, then I'll be happy, then this will happen, then I'll feel this way. I'm wondering, you know, after attaining a level of success, attaining, I'm sure, a lot of your, your dreams, was there anything that surprised you? Was there anything that uh, shocked you about 
attaining success, uh, any myths about success that you found out for yourself? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I learned, I went through what I called my nouveau riche stage. One year I made $6 million off the book royalties. And, um, mm. you know, I bought sweaters I wanted in every color, you know, that kind of thing. So I went through that whole thing. I hired a personal chef. I filled a wine cellar full of wine and did a lot of things that I thought, you know, successful people do. And what I learned is you can only wear one sweater at a time. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how rich you are. If you get a cold, you've got a cold. I don't get sick anymore because I take really good care of myself and I take a lot of vitamins. But the point being that, uh, you know, I think Bill Gates said, you know, when you're a millionaire or a billionaire, a hamburger is still a hamburger. And so that, um, I think you realize that outer things don't bring you happiness. I mean, there's certainly there's always a little bump. You know, you buy a new car, you feel good about it for a couple of weeks. You get a big screen TV, it's cool for a while. Uh, like my pool table was cool for, you know, maybe three months or whatever. But things don't bring ultimate happiness. What brings ultimate happiness, in my opinion, is relationships and inner work. You know, I meditate every day. I visualize. I do gratitude exercises. Um, you know, I work out physically and so forth. And so experience experiencing joy in the moment with the things that really matter, like holding my grandson. I mean, you can be a poor person living in Mexico in a farm way out in the middle of nowhere. You can hold your grandson. That's that same feeling when I'm holding my grandson in my son's apartment in New York. And so the real things I've discovered that bring joy, I mean, money can certainly buy you a lot of opportunities but that doesn't really make you happier. In fact, they did a study recently, you probably know about it, where they found up to about $150,000 a year, additional money actually does bring greater happiness to people. But after you reach a peak of about 150000 the more money people get, it actually brings them less happiness. They start worrying about the money. People are trying to get things from them. They loan money. People don't pay them back. Um, you know, You start worrying about protecting what you have instead of earning what you want. And it changes mm. the game. So I think those are the main things I would say I learned. Mm. Mm. Powerful. You know, you mentioned meditation and gratitude journaling. Uh, I'm wondering if there are any other uh, practices or any other secret practices that you do on a daily basis that really make a difference in your own consciousness and your own heart space. Well, I teach something called the hour of power, uh, the, mm. the morning discipline of 20 or more minutes of meditation and then 20 minutes of aerobic exercise or weightlifting, uh, and then 20 minutes, and I do what's called a burst training where you go full out like for two minutes on a spin bike or something, and then you rest for a minute, and there's actually research that shows that's better than going you know, straight through for 20 minutes. And then uh, reading, reading something inspirational and uplifting, whether it's a Rumi poem or a chicken soup story or a self-help book or an autobiography or the Bible or the Quran or the, the um, you know, um, any of the other religious books like the Bhagavad Gita that are out there, etc., so that we all have um, inspiration coming into our life every day. It could also be watching an inspirational video on YouTube, you know, something like a TED Talk or something. But the idea is that you're constantly meditating. You're constantly exercising and get, helping your health, and you're constantly every day doing something that will, um, you know, uplift you, inspire you, uh, and, and educate you. And then I also uh, do um, a gratitude journal, like you said, I write in that. And I do this thing called a rampage of appreciation that I learned from the Abraham work, where 
I take five minutes or so, and I just walk around and appreciate everything. The person who, like right now, I'm sitting in my wife's office because they're in my office setting up for a video shoot this afternoon. I'm looking at the paintings on the wall she did, and I appreciate her her ability to paint and bring beauty into our home. I appreciate the guy who designed the lamp that I'm looking at across the table, the person who made the fabric, wove the fabric that's on the couch that I sit on, the you know Steve Jobs who created the Apple computer I'm looking at. So it's like just getting into that space of realizing None of this would exist without other people's efforts, and um, so mm-hmm. it's get it. Rhonda Byrne, who was the producer of the movie The Secret, said that she does her gratitude exercise every morning until a tear forms in her eye, because she knows she hasn't really reached that level of gratitude until she does that. And the last thing I do, well, two last things I do. Number one, I always appreciate at least ten people a day for something, actual email, phone call, my staff, uh, whatever card that I might send out. And then the last thing I do is called the evening review. This is a very underknown and underutilized technique. Whatever you're working on in your life, it could be a, you're working to be calmer or have more humor or be more loving, compassionate, or it could be a certain goal you're working on, you know, like to finish your book. Every night before you go to bed, you close your eyes and you go inside and you ask a higher power or your higher self to give you images of the day where you you could have been more loving or whatever the quality was you're working on, more patient, more calm, or where you could have been more focused working on your book. And invariably, things come up. Oh, I got impatient with my secretary. I yelled at the dog. You know, I got pissed off at the guy at the red light because he didn't move fast enough. And then what you do, and this is the key part, is you replay in your mind how you would have liked to have done it had you been more conscious. And what that does over time, it lays down a blueprint so the next time you're in that situation, you're more likely to act in the way you want. So you're leading a life by design, a life by intention, a life by choice, rather than a life by unconscious reaction. Mm, mm, mm. Powerful practices, I think, we can all take and implement in our lives to, to live more authentically. You know, Jack, I think there's a lot of people also who've been inspired by you and, and feel that calling, as we've been talking about, to write, to speak, to train mm. as as visionaries and you know you've been in the industry a long time 40 years teaching and experimented and you know, you've reached the level you, you you are now i would love to hear your advice to those that feel a calling to train i know you teach trainers with your train the trainer program that you know people can find out more on your website but like what's the most important if, if you were to look back on your career not not even life in general but just the career part uh What's the most important thing you wish you knew that you would like to share with those that are in this industry, maybe just beginning, have a feel a calling to be in this industry and teach and write and speak? What do you feel they need to know? What would you like to say to the, the, the visionaries and the teachers out there, the potential teachers out there? Well, I think, first of all, you have to decide what is it you want to teach. And I found that what I wanted to teach were the things I learned that were valuable in my own life. And I wanted to turn around and teach those to others. So I had a lot of self-esteem issues, and I took a lot of self-esteem workshops, and everything that helped me break through that, I started and I designed a workshop based on those exercises, those concepts, uh, those little lecturettes that I you know, put together, et cetera. But most of it was things that I learned from other people. So the first thing is, for me, I was a great aggregator. I took the best of everything and put it into my thing. And so uh, I took a lot of trainings. I think I learned the most when I volunteered to be an assistant, at, there was a company called Insight, which is kind of yeah. a spiritual life spring training. And I volunteered 
to be an assistant, you know, to hand out tissues when people cried, to set up the chairs on the breaks, to set up the room, to hand out crayons during an exercise, whatever. So I was always on that team for, you know, anytime there was a, a training in the Boston area, I was there volunteering. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I learned that model of training. I got to a point where I said I could do that in my sleep. I, the trainer would be asked a question and I would know the answer in my head. So then mm-hmm. I took a lot of other trainings. I said, well, I like that exercise. I love that exercise. I love that little the metaphor they used to talk about, you know, responsibility, whatever. And I kept a three-by-five index card file. Today you do it in your computer. And um, and then when I go to design a training, I'd say, well, I'm going to do that exercise, followed up by that little lecture, and I'm going to do that exercise. So I had a lot to draw from. And the next thing is then you want to go give a training. And it could be you start with an hour. Then you do a three-hour half day or an evening. And then you do a day long. Then you do a weekend. You know, I'm at the point now where I could run a 30-day training and never run out of stuff. I'm sure you could do the same thing. And in the process of that, you start then developing your own techniques. Your own ideas start coming into form. And so that's really powerful as well. But I would say take a lot of trainings. Watch a lot of TED Talks. Go watch a lot of videos. I mean, everyone you've ever wanted to get trained by has videos on YouTube. You can learn a lot from them. You can learn some techniques for processing people like EFT and neuro-linguistic programming. In other words, go pretend you're going to college to learn to be a trainer. What are, what are the courses that exist out there in the universe, not in the university, that you could take? And then have the, the guts to actually put yourself on the line. It could be in front of 10 friends on a weekend in your home. It could be a local community group, your church, a, a business, a brown bag lunch where you teach something. But the main thing is you got to start doing it. And then be open to feedback. Always ask for feedback. That's really difficult. It's, it's scary. Mm-hmm. But it's only through feedback that you get better. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate this seminar? What would it take to make it a 10? And then that's where the real valuable information comes in. Videotape yourself. Uh, watching your own videotapes is probably the hardest thing you'll ever do because you'll be yelling at the screen, smile more, why don't you look friendly, say that, why'd you say that, that's stupid, you know, but that's how you learn to do it better next time is by, you know, looking at what you did this time, um, and then it's just practice, practice, practice. As you mentioned, we have a, a training called Train the Trainer where we train people to actually run uh, workshops based around the success principles, and we do them every year, uh, twice a year now. And we also have a home study program where people can actually learn this by watching 40 hours of video, taking a test, and then we certify people. So jack at jackcanfield.com or just go to www.jackcanfield.com. Right? That's our website, and um, you can read about our Train the Trainer program. Powerful. Now, Jack, I have a couple of final questions. It's been a really powerful, powerful session with you, and I know everyone listening in, hope you're taking lots of notes, and I know everyone's receiving just so much value from everything you're you're sharing. Uh, based on your life experience and everything you've learned, everything you've been through, if, if you've shared so much, so some might overlap, but I'm curious, if, we would, if you were to distill like the three most important life lessons that you've learned, that if you could only pass on these three keys to the next generation, that you feel these three keys would evolve the next generation the most, what, what would the three keys be that you've learned? Well, I'm going to top off the top of my head, and it may end up being four, but whatever <laughs> whatever it is, I think Go number one is be yourself, be authentic, tell the truth faster, don't be afraid of rejection. In other words, we're so afraid that if we really share what we feel, what we think, that things are going to get worse. 
And sometimes they get uncomfortable, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it always turns out better when we do that. So that's one of the life lessons I wish I'd learned when I was much younger. I was so shy and so afraid of rejection, and I just wasted a lot of time. And the the easiest thing in the planet is to just be yourself. You you don't have to rehearse to do that. You just be yourself. And um, that's the first thing I would say. Don't try to impress anybody. Just trust the people that will love you will love you as you. Because when you're trying to impress people and be an act, you never are sure if they're falling in love with your act or they fall in love with you. So you want to make sure they're falling in love with you. Second thing I would say is along the lines of what we just said to the last question, which is really, you know, I believe in the law of attraction and I believe all the things that we visualize can come to us, but we do have to do our part. We have to work. We have to develop our skills. When opportunities present themselves, we have to take the risk to actually do them. So I would say, you know, develop as many skills as you can in anything that you're attracted to. Figure out a way to do it if you have to beg barter, uh, you know, if you don't have the money, do a trade, but but keep developing yourself, you know, and you can do a lot of it through reading and audios and so forth. Dream big. I think, you know, if I wish that I had learned that earlier, uh, one of the people I interviewed for my book, The Success Principles, uh, was G- uh, General Wesley Clark. He was the head of the NATO forces in Europe for many years, and he said when I interviewed him, he said, it doesn't take any more effort any more time, any more money, any more calories, anything to dream a bigger dream than just to dream a small dream. So if your Mm. brain is a teleological mechanism that will always give you what you want if you program it correctly by having the vision, then what happens is why not dream big? So I used to dream really small, and then all of a sudden I said, okay, I want to to do a book that sells a million copies and affects millions of lives, and that's when Chicken Soup came to me. Um, and then I, lastly, I would say follow your joy. You know, we talked about that earlier, life purpose. Your joy is a feedback system from the universe that tells you you're on purpose. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like your GPS in your car. When you're not experiencing joy, I don't mean you're like ecstatically happy every second, but that you're, you're enjoying what you're doing. When I write a book, mm-hmm. I might be up till 6 in the morning having started at 10 at night that night, and I all wow. of a sudden I hear the birds singing, and I go, oh, damn, that means dawn's coming, you know? Uh, but I'm so into it. I love it. You know, I, I love to figure out what's the right way to say that and so forth. So if you follow your joy, dream big, be yourself, and then keep developing the skills that you've been given, uh, I think you'll have a magical life. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at kooplaxon.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.